in one of my previous jobs. I was driving along uh, one of the approaches to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And not long before I got onto the bridge, the car that was in the lane next to me and just a little bit uh, behind me, on this side, uh, swerved across into my lane. Uh, They crashed into my ute. They wiped out the wheel arch on the, on the front passenger side and the effect of the impact pushed me then across the next lane and into the concrete uh, crash barrier that was next to me. The, the front bumper bar got caught up in a, in a road sign and it was ripped off and went in under the front of the car. Uh, the, the driver's side window uh, smashed as something came into the car uh, with me. It scraped right along the side of the car. Some of the equipment that I was carrying on the back of our, our work ute uh, came off onto the road and the driver just kept going. Now when we, I caught up to the driver with some sparks flying off bits of the car and we got to the other side of the Sydney Harbour Bridge with a safe spot to pull over... The other driver flew out of their car, accusing me of causing the accident. They looked at me and decided that since I was a young driver, I was inexperienced, I'd been driving for less than five years, and so it was my fault. I was driving an old work vehicle, a vehicle that was old, it was my fault, a vehicle that wasn't mine, so it was my fault. I should have anticipated their sudden need to change lanes, even though they didn't use an indicator. And then they saw that I was wearing work boots. I must be at fault. It wasn't what I expected. The one who was clearly in the wrong was pointing the finger at me. The accused becomes the accuser. And as it played out, they even took the accusation all the way to court. And they lost. In the book of Acts, the accused becomes the accuser. The accused here is Stephen, and he becomes the accuser. Perhaps not in an irrational, accusing kind of way like my driving friend on the Sydney Harbour Bridge... The Sanhedrin here in Acts brings Stephen to court but it's them that turn out to be on trial. And though Stephen's dead, this is no win for the Sanhedrin. The great triumph here is Jesus' mission. Have a look with me at Acts chapter 8 where we stopped the reading. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The great triumph here is Jesus' mission. Stephen's trial, Stephen's death and the persecution that follows is what ejects the gospel out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth just as Jesus had promised. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. These verses are here for us 
to give us comfort and confidence that God is in control. A Martin Luther, who I mentioned last week, he composed the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And translated into English, we have these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Uh, Luther's reflecting here on all kinds of things in the world, devils, spiritual beings, evil spiritual beings, but just all kinds of things that go wrong in the world, all the kind of things that afflict us, all the kind of things that bring us down in life, all the kind of things that make us think that God is not in control of his world anymore and he has forgotten about us. Luther says and sings, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Stephen knew this comfort and confidence that God is in control, that God will triumph. So though he is accused with false charges... He becomes the accuser of true charges against the Sanhedrin. There are two false charges that are brought against Stephen. We see in chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11, there's two false charges that are brought against Stephen. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. The first false charge against Stephen is blasphemy against Moses because supposedly Stephen speaks against the law of Moses. The second false charge that's brought against Stephen is blasphemy against God because Uh, He is charged with speaking against the holy place, the temple. Have a look in chapter 6, verse 13. Chapter 6, verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testifies, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, here's the two false charges. Now, we should be expecting that what, Jesus, uh, what um, Stephen says about Jesus to be reasonable, logical, reliable. Stephen is a recognised leader in the early church. In chapter 6, verses 3 and 5 that we looked at last week, he's a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we see in verse 8 that Stephen is under the control of God's grace and power. He is doing wonders and signs, perhaps healing people like the apostles had and like Jesus did before them. And in debate, chapter 6, verse 10, no one can stand up against him. He's wise. He might have been particularly clever with his words, but he also, in his testimony about Jesus... He knows the eyewitness accounts of the apostles who knew Jesus and saw Jesus dead and resurrected and ascended. 
And with that kind of testimony, no one could stand up against Stephen. What it is that really grates is that Stephen's teaching from Jesus through the apostles is really challenging the synagogue members. For them, their whole heritage and identity and passion is deeply tied up with the temple and with Moses and the law. Though God had prepared the way with prophetic messengers, his people only heard what they wanted to hear. Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he doesn't fit their religious agenda. Jesus doesn't make space for the little gods that they have in their own hearts. The gospel message about Jesus that breaks into the world turns the world upside down, or rather right side up. The gospel in every age upsets every world view that doesn't have Jesus at its centre. And that's what it does for these synagogue members. They can't counter the gospel message. They can't contain Stephen. They can't suppress the testimony about Jesus. So what they do is they stir up false witnesses and false charges against Stephen, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses. Now, if we feel like this might be a massive derailing of God's mission, have a look at verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Having the face of an angel is a sign that God's favour rests on Stephen, like it did with Moses beforehand. And here it's not just described as looking like the face of an angel, but even his accusers recognise it. They see that God is with him. They know that God's favour is with him as they raise these false charges against him. As we come into chapter 7, chapter 7 is Stephen's trial, where the accused becomes the accuser. And his defence here is to recount Israel's history to show that history accuses them. God, in Israel's history, has shown himself to be always good, always faithful, always merciful. That's particularly well known with Abraham's story in the, in the first uh, series of verses there. Though it's about Abraham... Take note how much it mentions God in there. And while God has shown himself to be good and faithful and merciful, Israel's response is a sad pattern of rejecting God's man. So in chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 9, we see the Israelites represented by the brothers of Joseph. They are jealous of God's man, Joseph. In verse 27, the Israelites, they push aside God's man, Moses. In verse 39, after they've been rescued out of Egypt on their way to the promised land, verse 39, they refuse to obey the law given down through God's man, Moses. Verse 41, 
though God has appeared to them, though God has given them his good laws, they replace worship of God with what is made by man. Stephen is building a compelling case against Israel from their history. And verse 51, he says, the pattern continues today. Verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. These guys accuse Stephen of blasphemy against Moses but like their forefathers... They are so caught up in their own religious agenda that they celebrate the kind of things that should make them cry. They accuse Stephen of blasphemy against God and the temple. But they're the ones who in their temple obsession has brought about this misguided attempt to conveniently contain God. You see, as Stephen also recounts uh, the history of God's presence with his people, they should know that God cannot be contained. Uh, Verse 48, chapter 7, verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. This is uh, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God cannot be contained. God is everywhere. God is always on the move with his people. In the narrative history of Abraham, God was on the move with Abraham. When Joseph and God's people in Israel, God was there with them. In the desert, God was there with Moses and his people. And then when God does give the tabernacle and when God gives the temple as a special symbol of his presence with his people, he's not contained to it. And we see with the coming of Jesus that God busts out of the temple And as a dramatic realisation of that, Stephen here says that he sees the glory of God while he's standing in this courtroom. See verse 54? Chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They've brought charges against Stephen but the accused becomes the accuser. And where Stephen at the start of his address 
spoke of his accusers, verse 3, as brothers and fathers, by the end of his speech, we see that he claims to not have any kind of similar family heritage with them. You stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised hearts and ears. The accused becomes the accuser. And what's the verdict? Who wins? The synagogue elders? The Sanhedrin priests? Stephen? No one? Stephen's accusers erupt in this out-of-control fury, this beast-like viciousness, baring their teeth, gnashing their teeth, running away in this irrational, covering their ears. We don't want to hear what he says. Verse 57, they cover their ears, they yell at the top of their voices, they rush at him, they drag him out of the city and began to stone him. Stephen's steady confidence and deep comfort is in God. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Who wins? Who wins? Well, God wins. There's there's no joy in the death of a good man here. There is no joy in seeing the misguided zeal and anger of his accusers. There's no joy in the great persecution of believers that follows as a result of this. But the great triumph here is Jesus' mission. And these chapters are here to give us comfort and confidence that God is and always will be in control. I shared with you earlier some lines from the hymn that Luther wrote. He wrote this hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, in 1527. It was a very hard year for Luther. He'd gone through a period of deep and dark depression. There was conflict outside the church and conflict within the side of the church. While he'd come up against challenges with those who were outside the church, even now within those people who he shared a like-mindedness with, there was conflict. From outside the church, his life had been threatened. Then he went through a period of being very sick. He nearly died. And then a plague broke out in Wittenberg. Friends around him were dying. His son almost died. He and his wife turned their own home into a hospital. It was in that time that Luther wrote this hymn. A mighty fortress is our God. And in one of the other verses he has this. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Luther could be confident 
and comforted that God's ways will triumph. In 1839, two missionaries sailed out from London to the New Hebrides, as it was called in those days. Uh, We know it today as Vanuatu. Two missionaries did this long journey from London right across the world to Vanuatu. Within minutes of them going ashore, they were eaten by cannibals. Several years later, John Payton set sail to the same place with his wife. One of the respected elders in his church challenged his decision to go. He said, you will be eaten by cannibals. Peyton responded, Mr Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. Is this kind of thinking, the thinking of a heroic martyr or a misguided maniac? When we have our Sunday school filter on, Stephen is a courageous hero. He dies a martyr's death. When we have our current affairs filter on, Stephen's a fanatical fundamentalist. He's a maniac. When you think about it, are Christians misguided maniacs? Does Jesus create us into fanatical fundamentalists? An objection that your friend or perhaps you have to Christianity is that religion causes intolerance, fear, bigotry, fanaticism and from that can come terrorism and suicide bombers. Are we one step away from being misguided maniacs? Just think for a moment about some of the things that we've read in the Bible today. In Joshua chapter 8, of the destruction of the city of Ai. Now, none of us want to see religious violence. None of us want to see terrorism in this world in the name of a God. We don't want to see people drive cars into crowds to advance some kind of mission. That is evil. But is Stephen-like martyrdom or Peyton-like mission just one or two steps away? If the world round about us sees all religious devotion as fanatical, have you considered that our devoted belief in Jesus looks fanatical? I think perhaps this is why we hold back in making Jesus known. The world round about us has convinced us of a false charge. 
That deep devotion to Jesus is something that is for fundamental fanatics and misguided maniacs. And here's then what happens in our, in our workplaces or with our neighbours or in our local community or among our friends and family. We know the amazing news of the gospel. We are absolutely convinced that Jesus lifts broken humanity into the hope of eternity. But if I speak up about Jesus, I'll just stir up what Christianity is accused of. So what can I do? Well, first of all, we need to know again that the gospel message is absolutely true. And then to remember that Jesus expects his gospel to be opposed. The gospel will upset the world views round about us. Jesus expects that his followers will be hated just like he was. But not hated because we might be hate-filled, intolerant and violent. The mark of a misguided maniac is an evil heart, is violence, is intolerant. That shows that you do not belong to Jesus. But Jesus says we'll be hated because of our love for one another. Jesus says we'll be hated because of our love for the world. And whatever comes, we need to know Jesus' mission triumphs. Know the comfort and confidence that God's good plans and purposes prevail. The story of Acts... The history of Christian mission in the world, the experience of believers, shows that the gospel spreads most among those who are uncomfortable in this world. If you look up any of the websites of the persecuted church and any of the places where the gospel is spreading most rapidly, those places seem to align. When I was at Bible college, we had a visit from a, uh, uh, an Anglican bishop uh, from Africa. He was converted as a uni- university student from a Muslim background. He had seen lots of opposition to the gospel. He had seen lots of mistreatment of Christians. He had seen lots of persecution. He had seen family members who also had converted from Islam to Christianity. He had seen them killed. He had a brother in jail. And when he was visiting our Bible college, he told us that he was praying that Sydney would see persecution. He said, we had this wonderful, great, solid foundation and knowledge of the gospel. But we needed a little bit more discomfort to spur us into mission. Now, we need not stand in the face of persecution and say, bring it on, (laughs) give me your best. We need not stir up persecution. But we need to know whatever happens, 
We need to know the comfort that God is in control. No twist or turn of history against the gospel is a surprise to him. And we can get on with making Jesus known lovingly, winsomely, passionately. And Jesus' mission will surely triumph.